0: Women should never be rulers, and I am so convinced of this that I would have barred my daughters from the succession had I married. I would have loved my kingdom more than my children, and it would have been a betrayal of my kingdom to leave it to girls, and I should be believed all the more since I am speaking against my own interest. But then I have always made a point of speaking the truth, whatever it has cost me. It is almost impossible for a woman to be a good monarch or a good regent, Women are too ignorant, too weak in body and soul and mind. Everything that I have read or seen confirms that women who rule or who try to rule only make themselves ridiculous one way or the other. I, myself, am no exception, even though I was groomed from my cradle to be a queen. The defect of being female is the greatest defect of all. Christina of Sweden, 1681. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.24 Christina of Sweden, the uninvited pest. I hope that you all enjoyed my surprise supplemental on royal funerals. It was a real race against time to get it out before the big day, and I am really pleased with how it turned out. I got to really bore the pants of my other half with all that newfound royal funeral knowledge while watching the ceremony. In the last regularly scheduled episode, Christina left Sweden after abdicating the throne, converted to Roman Catholicism, and then arrived in Rome as a guest of Pope Alexander VII. There had been many hopes that she could be the catalyst for a flood of conversions, but that would not be the case. Indeed, the Pope would be disappointed by her lack of fervour in her newly found Catholic convictions. She set up shop in the Farnese Palace and established a power base within the Flying Squadron, an unaligned, reform-minded group of cardinals, before getting embroiled in a French scheme to put her on the throne of Naples. Scandal was never far from Christina, particularly in her choice of friends and companions, but today we'll see her get embroiled in her most serious one to date. But before we get to that, I am happy to announce that voting has now closed for the next podcast topic. It was a very close run thing, with the winning option receiving 44% of the vote and the runner up receiving 42 Because I am a frightful tease, you'll have to wait until the final episode of this season to find out what it will be, but I am sure you won't be disappointed. I'm also pleased to say that my chat with Bree from the Pontifex podcast is now live on their channel, discussing Pope Joan, Maurizia and women in the early church. Search Pontifact in your podcast player of choice, or go to the link in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash The Other Podcast. You can keep the show going for as little as a dollar a month. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Christina left France convinced she had signed a treaty that would see her become the Queen of Naples. Cardinal Mazarin thought differently. Christina had proposed a treaty, but he hadn't conclusively agreed to anything. Christina was a talented diplomat, but she was dealing with a master in Mazarin. No sooner had she left than he opened peace talks with Spain. Christina was furious, demanding an explanation about, quote, this news which threatens the world with a great calm. I love the storm and fear the calm. Which is just about the best summary of Christina that I've ever read. This talk of peace quickly died down, but it certainly unnerved Christina and made her all the more determined to pursue the enterprise. She didn't return to Rome, instead setting up shop in Pesaro in the northeast corner of the Papal States. This was for a couple of reasons. First, plague was sweeping through Rome and this was a safe haven. But really, it was mostly to do with money. Christina never had enough of it and right now was skinter than ever before. Cardinal Mazarin had promised to send funds so that she could prepare herself for a future life as Queen of Naples, but nothing came. Frustrated, she dispatched her attendants off to France to try and chase this money up, and since I have talked about none of them before, I will do so now because they are about to become important. The first was Gian Rinaldo Monaldeschi. He was a Neapolitan patriot of minor noble stock who had backed the French side in the never-ending power struggle between it and Spain over the kingdom. He was Mazarin's eyes and ears in Christina's court and was well paid for it. Unsurprisingly then, he was fully committed to the plan to put Cristina on the Neapolitan throne, and in return was made Cristina's master of the horse. He departed to France, but no money came back. Her ire, only increasing, she sent attendant number two after him. He was called Francesco Maria Santinelli, an Italian marquis, poet, and semi-professional scoundrel. He was her master of the household and captain of the guard, and also had a brother, Ludovico, who served in her household as well. Francesco, who was sent after Monaldeschi to see why he didn't make any progress, did manage to send some money back, albeit only a paltry sum. At this, Christina threw her hands up in anger and did what she always did when she was annoyed. She made a bold move. Without an invitation or even permission to travel through France, she set off to Fontainebleau to confront the Cardinal herself. This was not the way things were normally done, but those sorts of niceties rarely stopped Christina. When she arrived after a long and arduous journey, she unsurprisingly did not find Mazarin there. So there she stayed, writing frequent letters to the Cardinal requesting a meeting and an invitation to court. Mazarin, though, had attracted what Veronica Buckley brilliantly describes as, quote, a tactical case of the gout, and so rebuffed her requests. Now, what happened next is extremely complicated and mired in controversy. She suspected that her mail was being opened and tampered with. This was far from ideal, because much of her mail concerned the top-secret Neapolitan plan – She wrote to the French postmaster to ensure that her letters should be sent by personal courier and delivered into her own hands. She was paranoid that the loss of French interest in the scheme and Mazarin's ghosting of her must be linked to this. There had to be a snake in the grass. The two suspects were her attendants, Monaldeschi and Francesco Santinelli, who had become bitter enemies. Monaldeschi took advantage of Christina's paranoia and forged a series of letters in Santinelli's name that made him look very traitory and made lurid accusations about her private life. Christina got hold of these letters and handed them to the prior of the Monastery of Fontainebleau, a man called Father Lebel, for safekeeping. A few days later, Labell was summoned to the castle and found Cristina, Manaldeschi, and two other men, including Santinelli's brother Ludovico, in the trophy gallery. We have a few accounts of what happens next, but I will be quoting from the report from Father Labell. He states that she asked him to hand her the letters. She then broke the seals and handed them to Manaldeschi, asking if he recognised the handwriting. He denied it, but his trembling voice gave him away. She then reveals that those letters had only been copies, and revealed the originals with a theatrical flourish. Cornered, Maladeschi admitted that it was all his own doing, but tried to pass the blame onto Santinelli. Getting nowhere, he threw caution to the wind, throwing himself at her feet and begging forgiveness. At this, the other men in the room drew their swords, but for the moment... Didn't do anything more. For the next two hours, Monaldeschi made his case to Christina, who listened, according to Labelle, with great patience and without a sign of emotion, nor showing a trace of anger. He failed to talk her around. She turned to Father Labelle, leaning on her cane, and with a loud, grave voice said, Reverend Father, I shall now withdraw and leave this man to you. Prepare him for death. Take his soul under your protection. Both Label and Monaldeschi were shocked by this sudden and vicious verdict and fell to their knees. Label pleaded with her to reconsider, but she said her mind was made up. She told him, quote, The traitor was the more guilty, indeed the more criminal, as he knew very well many of her ideas and secrets not to mention the benefits she had shown upon him greater than she could have bestowed on a real and well-loved brother. For this ingratitude alone, his conscience must smite him. She regretted not being able to grant my request, in view of the inhumanity and infidelity of which this miserable criminal was guilty. This was all well and good, but she was not the Queen of France, and executing someone in someone else's realm would embarrass the king and do her lasting reputational damage. But once again, Christina showed that she had never truly let go of her royal past. She said that she was still a queen, and Monaldeschi was her subject. He had betrayed his queen, and thus he must die. The execution was messy. Ludovico Santinelli, his sword still drawn from before, stabbed him in the stomach, but it wasn't a killing blow. Monardeschi pulled the sword from his own chest, losing some fingers in the process, and punched Ludovico in the face, sending him to the floor. He then beckoned to Labelle, asking for absolution. That given, he lay down prone on the floor, inviting the others to finish him off. But these guys were super bad executioners, and it took several blows to finish the deed. It was a gruesome and bloody end. But just as LaBelle had predicted, it wasn't just Monaldeski that died that night, but what was left of Christina's reputation. Why did she do it? Well, we can't know for sure, but this seems to have been a fit of pique by a proud but humiliated woman. She had been outmanoeuvred by Mazarin and it discovered some proof that Monaldeschi had been acting against her. We don't know what was in those letters that she so dramatically flourished on that fateful night. She destroyed them and never went into detail about the plot that drove her to kill. Christina was always certain of her own majesty. She was a queen, anointed by God. She may have given up her throne and crown, but not her pride and entitlement she firmly believed that she was acting both justly and within her own natural rights. But this violent and arbitrary killing, without even the hint of due process, was shocking even in absolute monarchies like France and the Vatican. The Pope banished her from the Eternal City, decrying her as, quote, a barbarian, brought up barbarously and living barbarously. Mazarin wrote to her through one of his emissaries, saying that, quote, the offence that your majesty has committed towards the King of France is so serious and its consequences could be so shameful to you that the cardinal has not been willing to inform the king that such an attack has been made in one of his own castles. He then went on to say that Christina should throw one of her attendants under the bus as a scapegoat. But she refused to do so, writing, quote, I cannot believe that the King of France assumes any power over me that would be incompatible with my birth and my standing, since in that respect I am the equal of any ruler on earth. I recognise no superior save God alone. In a later letter, she doubled down even further. Referring to the French ambassador, she wrote, Monsieur Chanu, whom I count among my best friends, will tell you that I welcome all that comes from you with respect. Although he has failed to make me panic, he has certainly painted my presumed atrocity in suitably vivid colours. However, we people of the North are rather wild and not very timid by nature, and you must excuse him if his message from you has not been as successful as you hoped. Please believe me when I say that I would do anything to accommodate you except to be afraid. Anyone who is past the age of 30 is hardly going to be worried about a little gossip, And as for me, I find it much easier to strangle people than to be afraid of them. As to what I did with Monaldeski, I can tell you that if I had not already done it, I would not go to bed tonight without doing it. And I have no reason to repent of it, but a hundred thousand reasons to feel satisfied. These are my feelings on the subject. If you accept them, I shall be pleased. If not, I shall continue to hold them anyway. She was defiant, but was not so totally out of touch that she didn't take some precautions to try and protect the smouldering remains of her good name. She even wrote an open letter explaining her actions, but few believed her. Mazarin had to kick Christina out of France, but she didn't have enough money, and he sure as hell wasn't going to fit the bill. He wrote to the Swedish ambassador asking for a contribution but got no response and he wasn't willing to antagonise arguably Europe's premier military leader. If he couldn't kick her out of the country, then he would isolate her at Fontainebleau until the whole thing died down. So there she stayed all winter, bored out of her mind, and still convinced that the Naples plan was a goer. She wrote letter after letter and got no reply. She was finally allowed to travel to Paris in the new year, but was shunned almost everywhere she went. Invitations were not forthcoming, and the letters she sent went unanswered. Not deterred, she showed up uninvited to various royal gatherings, but was becoming a figure of mockery. The Queen Mother, for instance, suggested that the King should invite her to a private ball, so, quote, We could all laugh at her at our leisure. It's fair to say, though, that while polite society ignored and scorned her, the people of Paris adored her. Unlike most of the nobility of Paris, she was visible. She hailed public cabs, she went to their markets and haunts. She was relatable in a way few of her birth ever could be. She was a curiosity, a queen who swore like a sailor and carried herself like a man. Mazarin and the king were desperate to get rid of her, but she had nowhere to go, the Pope made it clear that she would not be welcomed back at the Farnese Palace and so Mazarin was forced to give her use of his own palace in Rome to get rid of her. Even then he had to send his own carriage to the Louvre and escort her inside just to make sure that she would actually leave. Things were not much better for her in Rome. The Pope refused to see her and made it clear that anyone who wanted to stay in his good graces should do the same. She was desperately short of money her allowance from Sweden was now going to Mazarin to repay her debts to him, forcing her to sell even more of her possessions. Fortunately, however, scandal in Rome was cyclical, and her friend Cardinal Azzolino managed to reconcile her to the Pope, who had bigger fish to fry with the threat to Christendom from the Ottomans. Azzolino organized for her to move into the Riario Palace and replace most of her household with people who were a little more reliable with money and less likely to intrigue against her. In 1660, she received word from home that her cousin, King Carl Gustav, had died suddenly of pneumonia. He was succeeded on the throne by his son, imaginatively named Carl. He was only five years old. Coincidentally, the same age Christina had been when she had acceded to the throne. Once again, Sweden would be ruled by a regency council, which was now dominated by men who were rather ill-disposed to their embarrassing former queen. She needed to make sure that her allowance would still flow from Stockholm, and so she travelled north for the first time since the abdication. After six years away, she was going home. Christina was not welcomed back in Sweden with open arms. Indeed, the parliament had written to her expressly asking her to return to Rome, but lack of invitation rarely prevented Christina from just showing up, so the parliament was forced to welcome her to the city when she arrived. She even managed to talk them into formally agreeing to continue her allowance, albeit at a lower rate. But this was not the end of Christina's intrigues. She was worried that should the young king die, then a possible new regime would be even less amenable to her. So she wrote to the parliament saying that, should this happen, she would reclaim the throne for herself. This was the final straw. There was not a snowball's chance in hell that Sweden would accept a Catholic monarch. This letter was returned immediately, and Christina was told that she had to renounce any future rights to the throne if she wanted to receive any money at all. Backed into a corner, she was forced to agree. Before she left Sweden, she tried reconnecting with her former favourite, Eva Spar. She had been widowed, but was prevented from meeting Christina in any case. Sadly, this was their last chance to see each other again, as Ebba would die the following year at just 32. Christina returned to Rome, where things were hotting up between the papacy and the French. A minor disagreement over the route that Pope's guardsmen took led to shots being fired at the French ambassador and his wife's carriage being attacked in the streets. Christina offered to mediate in the dispute and was not put off when both sides rejected her offer. The French king savaged her in diplomatic language, suggesting, it is all very well to counsel moderation when one does not behave with moderation oneself. Her nose now thoroughly out of joint, Christina abandoned the centre ground and threw her lot in with the Pope, only for him to completely capitulate when French troops seized Avignon. The French pressured Sweden to punish Christina with a reduction in her allowance, but they were eventually placated. Once more, she had gotten involved in something she really didn't need to, and it nearly cost her dearly. Licking her wounds, Christina got her head down and focused on decorating her new home. She opened up the first floor of the palace, which included the best of her art collection and a throne room. While visitors admired her art collection, she spied on them through a secret peephole in the wall. The palace's top floor contained her vast library, which included some 2,000 manuscripts and books from as far afield as Japan. Alongside this was her salon, when she invited friends to talk and enjoy music and theatre. She was also an enthusiastic gardener. Indeed, her gardens were admired across the city for their vibrance. Her finances, which had stabilised now that she had more competent men running things for her, allowed her to employ more servants, one of whom was a new chamberlain, the Marquis Orazio del Monte. We'll come back to the man from del Monte later. In 1667, business brought her back to Sweden. That business, naturally, was international intrigue, and a need to safeguard her allowance. Sweden was on the verge of being dragged into the latest instalment of the Anglo-Dutch War, and the outbreak of hostilities threatened her own interests. Naturally, she had not been invited. Again, she had been explicitly uninvited, but she showed up anyway. When she was greeted at the border, she was expressly asked to keep her Catholicism on the down low. She could bring her priest with her, but he would officially be listed as a secretary, and her rites would have to be held in private. Christina nodded with understanding and obedience, and then completely ignored all of these conditions. Her services were held with an open door and began to attract curious onlookers, and cause a sufficient commotion that she got a stiff rebuke from the Regency Council, who told her that her priest should be sent home immediately. At this, she made a full and wholesome apology, recognising that she was a guest and begged their forgiveness. No, just kidding. She wrote a shirty note to the king, writing that she was surprised at this rebuke. I was not prepared for it, after all the honours and civilities paid me on your majesty's behalf. Although these were not more than my due, nonetheless I was generous enough to be obliged to you for them. Which is just about the most entitled thing that I have ever read. She described the demand that her priest should leave as being unjust, but that she was above feeling insulted, as, quote, I know how to draw glory and benefit from whatever happens to me. I intend to show Sweden and the whole world that there is no advantage on earth for which I would deprive myself a single moment of the profession and practice of my religion. Shockingly, this reply did not ingratiate her with the Regency Council, who reiterated their demands. Christina, in a fit of pique, issued an ultimatum. Either her priests stayed, or she would go with him. They, delighted, called her bluff, and so she stormed back to the border in an almighty huff. She settled back in Hamburg to plan her next move, and it was there that she heard the news that Pope Alexander VII had died. Had she been in Rome, she would have been highly involved in the conclave, but As it happened, she was delighted with the cardinal's choice. The new pope, Clement IX, was a close friend of hers and a fellow lover of the arts and favourite of the flying squadron. Even better, her great patron in Rome, Cardinal Azzolino, was made his secretary of state. She was so happy with all of this that she decided to throw a party in Hamburg. But there was a problem. Hamburg was a Protestant city, and ministers thundered from the pulpits about this heretical foreign queen spreading popery. Christina rarely let sage advice or common sense get in the way of something she wanted to do, and so she pressed ahead with her plans. There was a grand dinner, a procession, and a great display of 600 torches in the shape of a papal tiara. It's almost like she wanted to start a riot, which is exactly what happened. Stones were thrown, shots were fired, and many were killed. A mob charged her residence, undeterred by her men firing into the crowd with small arms and even a small cannon. At one point, the mob, led by what one observer called, a score of lusty fellows, cut down a tree and used it as a battering ram against her front door. Christina only just got out of the building alive, and left it to the Prince of Hamburg to calm everyone down. Of course, in her account of the incident, she promoted herself as a true Catholic heroine, defending herself and the faith against an unruly, heretical mob. This, combined with a trade dispute she set off that I won't bore you with, meant that Sweden had finally had it with their former queen. She was formally banished from the kingdom until the king came of age. She would never set foot in her homeland again. So she stewed in Hamburg, bored, frustrated and miserable. This was at the peak of the mini ice age and her quarters were freezing. Her letters to Azzelino were filled with discontent and he was getting tired of his former flame. She had been a lot of fun to be with in Rome, but he was now big and important and he had to portray himself as a paragon of piety and respectability she was a bit embarrassing. They would remain friends, but their romantic connection was over. But, you know, they could still be friends. She took it about as well as you would imagine. She wrote to him, quote, "'Thank you for your expressions of friendship. I only wish I could believe them. But you have already made it perfectly clear that I should not read too much into what you say.' It is really most edifying to read your religious reflections on everything that happens. I have no doubt your thoughts were all for God while you were watching those two young actresses at the French Ambassadors the other night. It must have been mortifying for you to have to look at them. Such shade. But though she was fuming and shivering in her frozen home, she still had one last scheme up her sleeve to return to the big time. Her cousin, King John II of Poland-Lithuania, had abdicated in grief after the death of his wife to become a Benedictine monk. Poland-Lithuania was an elective monarchy, and so the race was on to rule the largest kingdom on the continent. There were a heap of candidates to choose from, depending on your political stripe, but all they could agree on was that the person they would choose had to be a man. And a man's man at that, not some wet, sensitive thing that would run off to a monastery just because their wife died. Christina, in case you hadn't noticed, was not a man, but she did have a claim to the throne and was heavily favoured by the papacy. If she succeeded, then they would have a close ally on the throne, one likely to be loyal to them. If she failed, well, it was no skin off their nose. In the end, of course, it was a non-starter. She was too controversial, too foreign, and probably for the first time in her life that this had ever been said too female for the role At this time, she also discovered that yet another one of her servants was defrauding her. Her chamberlain, Del Monte, had been in business for himself for quite some time, and Cardinal Azalina had gotten wind of it and tipped Christina off at first, she refused to believe that her judgment had been let down again but eventually the evidence became overwhelming. Now, given that the last servant to betray her had ended up dead, Del Monte got off lightly. She dispatched him to Rome with the recommendation that he be tried and then, well, killed, but at least this time she thought there should be a trial. That's kind of personal growth. In the end, he got off with a slap on the wrist. Indeed, he would return to Christina's service no doubt lining his pockets liberally from her wealth for the rest of her life. Around this time, she also began to think more seriously about posterity. She knew she had lived an unconventional life and had many enemies and detractors. What better way to shape the narrative than to write an autobiography, which is precisely what she did. Indeed, I've been liberally quoting from it throughout this mini-series, including the bit I read at the start of the episode. Writing this work would take her around a decade and a half to complete. She called it The Life of Queen Christina, written by herself, dedicated to God. It is a fascinating book, though it needs to be taken with a galactic quantity of salt. As usual with historical salt material, though, it's what is between the lines that is most revelatory. It shows a woman with boundless confidence, intellect, and curiosity but also an immense talent for self-deception and a total lack of self-awareness. As she worked on her book, she finally decided to end her unhappy two-year stay in Hamburg. She achieved precisely nothing. The question of her rent was still contested, but hey-ho, back to Rome she goes. The pontificate of Clement IX was a golden time for Christina in Rome her friends staffed the upper reaches of the Vatican, and so she found herself invited to every social event and had audiences with the Holy Father whenever she wanted. He was also generous with his pocketbook, meaning that finally she could live the life of Riley that she had always wanted. She upped her artistic patronage, setting up Rome's first public opera theatre. While these were commonplace in other Italian cities, Such performances in the Eternal City had previously been confined to the palaces of the rich. Now, they were available to everyone, and the performances were incredibly popular. She brought famous singers and musicians to the city to play at these performances, but the most famous artists in her employ were sculptors and painters, and none were greater than Gian Lorenzo Bernini. A master of the Baroque style, his works adorn Rome to this day, and Christina was one of his biggest fans. He also had a great deal of respect for her, saying that she had a greater knowledge of sculpture than even he did. Unfortunately, she was not wealthy enough to own much of his work, though she is the subject of one bronze bust by him, which depicts her with tangled hair and a fierce glare. This was Christina's Indian summer, but it was over all too soon. Clement died after only two and a half years on the throne, resulting in a four-month-long conclave, one of the longest on record. As always, this was a fight between the French and the Spanish, and Christina had a whale of a time trying to play both sides off against each other, though she wasn't hugely successful in achieving much at all. Once the decisive factor in papal elections, the Flying Squadron had split, and Cardinal Azzolino could not direct the conclave in the way that he wished. Eventually, as they always did when they couldn't agree on who the Pope should be, they plumped for the oldest cardinal they could find, and punted the ball down the field. This was the end for Azzolino, who found himself kicked to the curb, and thus the same was true for Christina, The placeholder Pope ruled for a while, far longer than was expected, and was eventually replaced with the pro-French Innocent the 11th. He had once been friendly with the Flying Squadron, but his beliefs had latterly taken on a far more puritanical bent. He was, in a word, anti-fun. He closed down Christina's theatres and burned most forms of public entertainment. Her home, the Riaria Palace, became a refuge to the musicians and artists of Rome, and also attracted some more unsavoury characters. It was painted as a den of thieves and prostitutes, but she didn't much care. Thumbing her nose at authority had always been her favourite pastime, though woe betide anyone who did the same to her. She reformed her academy and once more invited the cardinals to hers to discuss lofty topics like the nature of love and whether wickedness was reserved for the stupid. She spent her time writing and visiting friends. But she was getting on in years and was slowing down. That did not mean, though, that there wasn't time for one last bit of scandal. One of the singers in her employ was a young starlet called Angelina Giorgini, who was attracting attention for her beauty and singing mobility. Her mother was finding it increasingly difficult to bat off all the suitors, and so entrusted her to Christina's care. She gave Angelina a room above her own, but this did not deter a man called Vanini. Angelina could not stand him, but he wasn't going to let something like that get in his way and so snuck into her room to, quote-unquote, surprise her. Unsurprisingly, she screamed her head off and upturned her furniture, alerting Christina to what was going on. She dispatched her men to save her ward and throw Vanini out. Christina expected him to face some consequences for his actions, but he had friends in high places and so got away with it. Christina, being Christina, wasn't going to stand for that, and luckily she had a contract killer called Merola on her books. She sent him to get revenge on Vanini. But the would-be rapist was able to outbid Christina and once more got away. When she found out about this, she got up and tried to strangle Marola herself, but before she could lock her hands around his throat, she fell unconscious to the floor. I imagine at this point, he made a judicious, hasty exit. This collapse was part of a downward spiral that would lead to her death only a few days later. In her final hours, she received absolution from the Pope, and with her great friend Colonel Azalina by her side, She died on the 19th of April, 1689, at the age of 62. She received a grand funeral. Her body lay in state at the Riario Palace for four days, and then to the Church of Santa Maria in Vallicella, where a requiem mass was sung, before finally being taken to St Peter's for burial. She is buried there in the crypt, one of only three women in history to receive this honour. Most of her worldly possessions went to Azzolino, though he had to sell quite a bit of it to pay off the debt she had accrued throughout her life. Most of her paintings were sold off to become part of the Orléans collection, which is now dispersed amongst the great galleries of Europe, though a great deal of it is in the National Gallery in London. Her books and manuscripts are a bedrock of the Vatican Library, and are one of the world's greatest collections of classical and medieval texts. Christina is a truly unique character in modern European history. She was so different, so unusual, so unfettered by concerns of appearance, that it seemed that no one knew what to make of her or what to do with her. She was a sea of contrasts, a queen who gave up her throne but not the trappings of royalty, She was comfortable inhabiting and exhibiting multiple gender roles and characteristics. She defined herself as a woman, but dressed and characterised herself in a masculine way. She loved deeply, but never gave much of herself to anyone. She lived her life in the shadow of her great father, Gustavus Adolphus, and the cultural baggage of the Reformation and the wars that had followed it. She attempted to forge her own path, live her life the way she wished it. Did it go the way she wanted? Not really, no. She didn't have the means nor the power to do that. She was deeply flawed, but is all the more fascinating for it. barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out